0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest from comes to us from Belfast in Belfast in Ireland. His name is Chris Donaldson. Published a book in 2020 about his adventures traveling the world on a motorcycle. Title of the book, the long title is Going the Wrong Way: A Coming-of-Age Story Like No Other. Chris Chris escapes 1970s Belfast. On his moto guzzi lamans to find himself in the road to australia what could possibly go wrong and it was there is an audio book right now for going the wrong way currently on amazon in the us it has 505 56 five-star reviews and it really just talks about his really kind of uh solo journey through the world on his motorcycle really fascinating a lot of uh stories and vignettes of conflicts and countries and things that probably not weren't very uh, you know familiar to him in ireland but he can talk more about that so chris donson welcome to the show thank you uh for people who may not have heard of you or your book can you kind of talk about your background in, Belf- in ireland and what what led you on this kind of world journey
1: yeah i was brought up in belfast in the 70s um I was uh, went to secondary school in the middle of town, in the middle of the city. Um, and I really didn't know anything else about what was going on in Belfast in the 60s and 70s. It was quite an unusual, now looking back, I can see it was quite an unusual place to live in the middle of a basically a war zone. I was quite horrified when I took my daughter to the museum recently, actually, to notice that my life was in the other history of Belfast was in the museum already. So I wasn't expecting that in my lifetime but um, you know, it was a peculiar place with bombs going off and uh, the troubles as, as they were through the 70s and 80s and there was a big um, I suppose a big feeling in the kids when we were leaving school to get out of town to get out of Ireland, to go to America to go to England, wherever just to, get, to go away so uh, it was quite a feeling Ireland's always had a reputation for emigrating but it was certainly very strong in those days
0: um i just can you talk for, for americans may not be familiar as familiar with the troubles can you talk about the background of kind of the conflict between the catholics and the protestants and what went on during that time I mean, It was super chaotic right
1: yeah i mean it's been northern has been around for 100 years it used to be ireland was one one country and then this 100 years ago split up the north from the south and it's never really been peaceful since. Um, there's a Protestant majority and a uh, quite a strong, it's about 60-40 split between the Protestants and the Catholics. Traditionally, the Catholic population would want to be part of Ireland and the Protestants would want to be part of the UK. And there's been a simmering tension ever since. It was 100 years anniversary this year. Um, but in the 60s, it exploded in the 60s. Um, there was civil rights marches turned to violence. And uh, it spilled over in the major cities in Belfast and and Derry. Um, it was a pretty much a terrorist war. With the, the city would be blacked out, uh, not blacked out, but after people went to work, everybody would go home and lock themselves in their own their own sort of suburbs. Nobody would come into town. Um, so it was a your typical guerrilla warfare going on. The British put soldiers into time to try and keep the peace, and they soon got caught up in a conflict on the Protestant side effectively, and um, it was chaos for, for many years um, until really the end of the 90s. The Good Friday agreements resolved most of the issues.
0: Right, so there were tons of bombings. Thousands of people were killed, children, indiscriminate type of... Yeah, coming, like,
1: coming, um, one of the problems was a lot of schools in, the, in Northern Ireland are either Protestant school or Catholic school. So, you're, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really care about the politics, but what you do care about is getting home from school without like, getting beat up. So, uh, you, you're, you're pretty much, you'd have a flag on your back. So, that's what your school uniform was, is what school you went to. So, that was a sort of tension every day. Um, I was lucky I lived in one of the safer sides of town. But my parents had a family business, a furniture shop in the middle of the town, which got blown up regularly. Um, our school was was right in the middle of things as well. So we would have got our windows put in the old time. So it was quite a, a raising place to, to to grow up, as I well was looking back.
0: Right. So it was very chaotic chaotic. Was that probably how the seeds of your desire to kind of travel began? Was trying to get out get away from all the violence?
1: I think so. I think I sort of saw so when I was in my teenage years, I saw the futility of it all. It was people arguing about very little, but people dying over very little, but what I could to see to be very little anyway. So I wanted to get away and see what, how they, what happened in the rest of the world. Surely it couldn't be as bad.
0: Right. So you started on this collecting money, getting money together for your trip to Australia, right? Can you talk about how you kind of got ready for your journey?
1: Yeah, um, I'd always been into motorcycles and I had a, a sports motorcycle called Motor Moto which I thought was the hottest bike in town. And that time was 17, 18 years old. Um, but I wanted to take something more sort of touring mo- mode for like a BMW for the trip. But with all one thing, now I never quite got around to getting that. I didn't have enough money to buy it. Uh, so we saved up working Saturdays and so on um, to get enough money to head off. And um, I finally managed to get away in 1979, uh, October 1979, left Belfast, went to London and started collecting my visas and so on to get to Australia. And as soon as I got got to London. Of course, fourth of November, I think it was the, the uh, Iranian Revolution kicked off, and the American embassy was taken over, um, which basically sealed the route east to, to go to Australia. So that was my first. hence the name of the of it going the wrong way because I'd spent the last two years planning meticulously, planning to. Where all the countries going to go through getting the visas for the route was going to pass through to get to Australia, and all of a sudden it was just started and the fact that the road was blocked.
0: Right. So you were going to go from London, going straight east, all the way through the Middle East, the Asian countries, India, and that was your original route to Australia, correct? Yeah. And so you had to kind of change. So you were committed to going on the journey, but not that route, right? So you yeah, went, I, was,
1: yeah. I was committed to going away. I didn't want to go back home. I mean, you, you know, too embarrassing to sort of tell all your friends you're going to Australia, and then two weeks later come back home and say, oh, sorry, I couldn't make it. So it's determined to go summer. In those days, you couldn't go these the iron curtain was up. You couldn't go to Russia. So um, the only choice I had was to go south. Um, and I suppose the, what made the story what made the was the fact that I had no clue about Africa, about anywhere else, but where it's was going to go. So I was totally heading into the unknown, which is quite hard to imagine these days with the internet and uh, everything's being online and information so readily available. If you don't know anything about a country, just Google it. Uh, but in those days, of course, the, there's plenty of travel books around, um, but all the books that I had were for the wrong place in the wrong direction.
0: Right, and you had no cell phone, so you have no electronics. The things we take for granted, uh, you didn't have, right?
1: Pretty much. as speedometer was the only thing I had to go on, you know?
0: Right. And so you really were flying free. I mean, you write in the book, like, you're sleeping where you can. You're meeting with people. You're going through zones that are conflict, right? Israel, Sudan. Can you kind of talk what it was like to be... Uh, going from Greece to Israel and then traveling around the Middle East.
1: Yeah. Um, we went down to Greece and met up with a Scottish guy and a, on a motorbike and the two of us went over to Israel thinking we could have gone from Israel to Egypt, which when you look at your map, it looked as if you could do that quite easily. And there'd been a ceasefire agreement with Israel at that stage a few months previously. Um but unfortunately, by the time we, we got there, was we were too early, and it was it was quite peculiar. We were able to drive up to the the front line, effectively the trenches, and then across the roads. You could see the Egyptian flag on the other side of the the other side of the crossroads, and it wouldn't it wouldn't let us over. We had to go back. Uh, around the through Syria and Jordan. uh to get back. So where we were, so about a thousand miles round trip to get the other side of the fence, um, to get into. Israel. Syria was fairly these countries. The the, the trouble get trouble having them now. It's been going on. Egyptians has been in trouble for years and years. Conflicts go back to traditional. Um, religions and cultures, so, you know, what, what happens in Syria now is going, hasn't changed for you for generations, so it's it was a similar place to being 40 years ago as it is now, which is a bit scary when you're 21 and on your own,
0: right? Like, you're, you're pretty young at that time, kind of trying to make your way, I mean, through all these conflict laden regions, right? Yeah. So, what was Syria like back then in the uh, late latest seventies, early eighties?
1: Well, remember one of the most peculiar things is they wouldn't let me out of the port. There was basically a war going on outside the port, but they wouldn't let me out without a spare tire, which I thought was a bit silly at the time. Um, but actually, very often you put places like that you go to, people are very friendly. They're pleased to see strangers coming in, uh, they're, they're very hospitable. It's just the region itself that. the politics makes it difficult but the people you meet in the ground are usually quite friendly and very easy nice to get on with
0: right so you're finding most of the people are warm like you had warm experiences in austria kind of all through your travels even even into america the americas right
1: yeah i mean i think traveling in a motorcycle um People have, a, people have a, an emotion about motorcycles, they either love them or hate them. Generally, people like them. There's something about them that they like. Uh, the fact that you're on your own as well, I think people are much more in tune, inclined to, to look after somebody on their own to talk to them or help them along the way, rather than just crowded guys. So being on your own is it's by far the best way to see a country, to meet people and to, to get on.
0: Right. It works both ways, though, right? Because you're alone, too. So you're more uh, amenable or available to talk with other people as well. So somebody you're
1: with. Yeah, you, you sort of have to talk to somebody. You can't just sort of go to a bar and talk to your mate. You have to talk to somebody. When you're on a motorbike, you're, there's nothing between you and the outside. You know, it's not just sitting in a car with a window between people. You're in a box. When you're on a motorbike, you, you stop the side of the road. You're there. You're with people. So you're much more approachable for people as well.
0: Right and so so you're in this kind of crazy era of conflict what was it like going from the middle east to egypt and then you talk about going through the nubian desert sudanese as a as a westerner right a european
1: yeah um egypt was chaotic and i've been there recently but it's still chaotic um, the traffic is like well, the worst thing about the traffic in Egypt is they, they turn their lights off at night so they don't waste the battery. It's good, not, not great when you're driving down a two-lane highway. But um, I followed the, the road down past the slept in the pyramids at Christmas Day um, before, the, before the tourism really kicked off, I suppose, as much as it would be there now. So you're again, being on your own, you're not tied to tourist times. You can see things much more um, back to basics, but it, the further south I went, the more um, wild and, and, and uh, natural things, were, more back to nature things were, and in Sudan, the road actually stopped, uh, there's no road across the desert at all, um, and on my map, it's, there's a road marked, but a road, road in Sudan is basically the direction you go to, to travel. Wow. Doesn't actually have any context with what the surface is, you know.
0: Wow, so you were really going back into almost primeval or primitive civilization, right?
1: Yeah, and um, I was on a motorbike at that stage, which was just totally it was suitable for driving in roads and so on. But when you're driving off road, it's a completely different style of motorcycling to the motorbikes these days, are much more. I means the whole concept of enduro motorcycling is that cycles are designed for that sort of travel in those days you just took what you had and had a motor Guzzi. um some days we would do 10 miles drive all day digging pushing and you cover 10 miles uh, so time is the time and distance have a different meaning uh, compared to highway traveling down freeways and motorways
0: Right, and you like literally had to contend with illness, hunger, thirst, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, South Sudan and that stage was heading into a famine. Um, There's a war. Well, Central Africa is just one war after the other. So it's quite distressing to see the refugees and the literally people starving and dying of thirst. Yeah. which is affecting us too, because although I didn't have a lot of money, you know, enough money to buy some food, which is what most people didn't have. So it certainly brought you back to, to earth of how well we are off, uh, in the West I people say they're going hungry. They're not, they're, they're hungry. They're not really hungry. You know, if you haven't eaten for days, you're starving, you know, what hunger, hunger is. So was, I think Sudan was probably the hardest country I went through and, um, Learned a lot of life lessons at that going through there.
0: Um, I mean, were you did you see anybody from the west? I mean, they were all different, uh, you know, lo- just locals, right? Uh,
1: just basically, locals. yeah, you know occasionally you would have a westerner traveler, but um, Sudan was off the beaten track because. It's not it wasn't really it's not like egypt there's lots of things to see there mm-hmm. um you're traveling from one place to the other so it's not really a popular tourist route but uh no, you'd go for days without seeing any, any westerners at all um at one stage you i really couldn't find any petrol for i uh, to uh, scrounge petrol off people which is it's wild when you consider that sitting on top of billions of gallons of well, now it's a major oil-producing country, but in those days it didn't have any, any oil at all.
0: And le- you literally saw lepers and, you know, people with diseases that...
1: Uh, yeah, you I mean, basically, you're going through the jungle, with people are uh, running along beside you with um, bows and arrows and, and spears in those days. So it was, really it was back going back thousands of years. Um, then I got to, south of Sudan um, at that stage Idi Amin had just left Uganda so it wasn't much better it was, um, I drove into town there was tanks burnt down tanks the side of the road um, burnt out armoured cars in the places under curfew at night so I was really going out of the Frank, out of the Frank and into the fire going from Sudan to Uganda
0: right and that was the time when Idi Amin was running the country right
1: yeah, he'd just been kicked out. Uh, Tanzania, their next door had just kicked him out. it had been a war, short war between them. So they, the Tanzanian army were running the place at that stage. Um, but it was chaotic and all this. Um, most of the hotels were shut. Ended up sleeping in the police station, central police station in town, for a couple of nights because all the police had disappeared as well. So it was... Um, Africa was a little wild and unreal, to say the least.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Uganda, you went through what was the main city there? It was uh, Camp- Kampala, Kampala, right? Yeah. Kampala, right. So, you went through Kenya at that time. I mean, these are like post colonial countries, too. So, they're really going through a lot of different changes, right?
1: Yeah, Africa settled down a lot now. But in that stage, at that time, it was a lot of corruption. Post, just post-colonial, they're trying to work into work to the systems, their politics and their systems, and a lot of corruption, a lot of um, people trying bribery, to get bribery, something like that. Bribery True. corruption, yeah. Kenya was 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 okay, but Tanzania, Zambia, again, the police very often the police wouldn't be, get paid. Uh, the money would not been circulated down to them, so they were relying on bribes and on fines and so on to, for, for their wages themselves. You know, so it's so if the bribes were lining their pockets or they didn't get paid. So, so the, the infrastructure of the country, the systems, the civil service
0: just didn't exist
1: in all these places.
0: Right, so it's difficult. You're always kind of, it's almost like you're a road warrior trying to find resources, right? Food, <laughs> gas things like that, well, you know.
1: Well, first. it was a bit like that. Yeah, I mean, at one stage, coming up out of Sudan, I actually rode off the edge of my map because I didn't have a map that went further south from that. So I literally didn't know what I was going to meet up with next. And as I say, I hadn't been able to do any homework to find out. So, um, But uh, looking back on it, that's what made the trip was the fact that usually when you go traveling, you're going from one place to the other. There's a destination in mind. Uh, which I, I set off with the destination, my, my trip as well was Australia. But after I got started, it really didn't have a destination, it was really just traveling for the sake of traveling. So it was quite a pure sort of uh, way of life rather than actually going somewhere,
0: right? And you had to kind of adapt to your environment, too, right? So you had to adapt to the country and nation you were in, right?
1: Y- yeah, um. And that can vary, as you say, when you're traveling geographically, it's from Sudan to, or from Austria to Sudan, you're going from highs and lows temperature-wise and height-wise in Israel around the Dead Sea, is 1,200 feet below sea level, you know, so it's quite extreme geographically and culturally as well. And uh, finally got down to South Africa in the middle of apartheid in those days, so it was an unusual, um, system as well going on there.
0: And what, what how, what were your memories about being in South Africa and Zimbabwe, right? It, or it was Rhodesia, right? When you were there, it wasn't Zimbabwe yet, right?
1: Yeah, it was Zimbabwe, Rhodesia it was just in the transition. They, uh,
0: their war just
1: stopped when um, they were transitioning to Zimbabwe. So, um, I mean, they, whenever I left, they were having a war. It was they, they couldn't believe it got there because it, when i left i wouldn't have been allowed to go there so it was a struggle out that the borders were open at all um so it was a bit scary everybody was still traveling by convoys from one time to the next it was still quite lawless going on there um but I guess as you say that's the end of the colonial rule was working its way through, through, through the whole of africa and the chaos involved from revolved from that um but as far as i was concerned south africa was a, a civilized so destination for me to go to um and it was certainly well well received when i got there because they were cut off pretty much with sanctions and so on um from the rest of the western world so um I don't know. It wasn't very many people driving down or getting there at all in those days. So, if you're an unusual um, tourist, you you attract some attention, certainly. Beautiful country, nice people, friendly people, uh, but again, with their own problems.
0: Right. So, just like you're going from one conflict to another conflict to another conflict. When you got down to South Africa, you had to make a decision, right, about where, where to go next.
1: Well, it got to Cape Town, is pretty much a dead end. There's not much further there than the South Pole. So, um, it looked like I was gonna have to sell the bike and just come home. I uh, didn't have enough money to get to Australia. But luckily, uh, I mean, that luck has an awful lot to, to do with traveling in your own, good luck or bad luck, being in the right place at the wrong place at the right time. I managed to get a job I was sailing out coming back to the UK, which was sponsored by a shipping company so they shipped the bike to Los Angeles and I uh, got back to the UK, spent five weeks sailing in a yacht race back to the U- UK. I mean, this is a, this is a, the Volvo ocean race is a famous one that goes around the world every three or four years. Now people train for train for years to get a place in the boat, one of those, one of those boats, mm-hmm. whereas I was just lucky enough to, to walk on and, uh, like I'd done a bit of dinky sailing. My only, my only sailing I'd done was a bit of dinky sailing at that, at that time. So it was a from a solo motorcycle to being part of a crew in a yacht race. It can be much more different.
0: Right. So you you got on this boat and how did you make it from there to North America?
1: Well, well, go back to UK, we'll go back to UK after a few adventures in the boat, such as the rudder breaking off and having to stop and not, not get shipwrecked, but we managed to get into the Cape Verde Islands and get that fixed. We'll go back to UK and then flew to Los Angeles to pick up the bike, uh, which had just arrived into the port there. So I spent the next six months traveling around North America, going up to Canada, Across to Ottawa and then worked in North Carolina for some time and getting a bit of the American lifestyle, which I really enjoyed. Um, I've met, I work for people in North Carolina who I'm still in touch with, still do some business with. So um, it's amazing after 40 years, still connections have made when I was 21, are still alive, you know.
0: Interesting. All right, you were done. Well, you were done with your journey, and you were still very young twenty three, twenty. So you did it, right? As a, a pretty young person, right?
1: Yeah, I didn't quite realize how young I was at that stage. Because um, I mean, it was, I was found out the other day. I think the youngest person to ride a motorbike around the world did so the last year was 22, twenty two, twenty three. So uh, I was younger certainly than anybody I have met along the way. Um, And then when I went down to South America, that's that's when everything started going wrong, I suppose. Um, I got ill. I didn't have enough money to complete the trip um, that I wanted to. And the bike was taking a hammering as well. So everything was starting to, 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 to peter out, I suppose.
0: Right, and you have tons of pictures in the book, too, as well, of all your kind of adventures and people you've met, too, right?
1: Yeah, I took a lot of photographs along the way and um, took a lot of notes. I was going to write a book about my adventures along the way. I started, In fact, I started to do it at that time when I got back. Um, and then I find out a guy, just nobody had ever written a book we were riding around the world before. But as soon as I got back, somebody had been at it before me and he'd, he'd brought a book out, which is quite successful. So I decided he's done it. He's published a book, there's no point in me doing it. So it was hence the delay in 40 years from actually doing the trip to writing the book, which now looking back now, is a, I can see it as a blessing because I was twenty-one. I didn't really appreciate appreciate all the things that happened to me, but I didn't appreciate how they would affect me um, psychologically and how the impact it would make on how I lived my life and the impact it made on me as a twenty-one-year-old at that stage. You know, so I think I was able to write a much better book. by with the experience of not old age, but experience of the life experiences in between.
0: Right. I mean, and you, uh, you were also inspired. I think you said like by the Long Way film with, with you and McGregor. They kind of did something like you, but yours <laughs> was uh, much more underproduced, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Well, the, I mean, the, to ride a motorbike away through those countries that they did and we did. It's difficult enough, but um there's a big difference doing it between a, doing it on your own or having a, a backup crew with trucks and spare bikes and so on as well. Um so not to under don't don't talk what they've achieved by doing what they've done. Um but part of the um the reason you do a trip like that I think is to to not supposed to discover. It sounds a bit of a cliche, but to discover yourself to see how you can react to different experiences, different cultures and to test yourself. Whereas if you're with a crowd of people looking after you, you can't do that. So I do think they, they miss out a lot by by the way they've done that. But if you're a film star and you're good um, you enough money to do that, you, you, that's the way you're going to travel. Um, but
0: uh, it, You kind of had a little bit of psychological... PTSD, you said, after you were done, right? Because you had pretty much been out for a year and a half or two years, you know, hard scrabbling your journey across the world, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think if you're in a, in a difficult situation every day, every day, every day you're getting up, you don't know what's going to happen for long enough. It's going to have an effect on you psychologically as well because your brain goes into a system of coping with the unknown and the danger. Um, and then when that you're removed from that dangerous situation, every day it takes a while for your brain to adjust again. So you don't have to worry about where you're sleeping, uh, what you're going to survive in the road, what you're going to do. Or you're, you're you're always looking out, looking out for your back, see if there's anybody. You when you're traveling in third world country, you're you're a rich guy. You've got you've got. Motorcycle, you've got sessions which people are envious of. You you always got to be looking out out for yourself. Um, But one of the, I suppose, one of the recent things that's happened is that uh, after I brought the book out, I I still haven't never driven a motorbike to Australia and I still have the same motorbike. So a friend talked me into um, trying to make the trip again. So last year we set off on the same motorbike to go to Australia only this time in the stages because I've got a wife and family and work to come back to. So um, it took two weeks to get to Israel again, didn't get out of Israel, but they wouldn't let me over the border again. So I uh, thought this is going all wrong, but I managed to get to Iran, Turkey and Iran, and the bike is now in Dubai. So in two weeks time, I'm gonna be going out to continue the trip that I started 42 years ago.
0: Okay. Awesome. And the, you were in Dubai for uh, eight years or something like that as well. So you kind of kept
1: that. Yeah, uh, I was home for a while, and um, yeah, lived uh, again. I lived in a, a yacht in Dubai. Um, so another every once in a while, I've, all of a sudden, I find the experiences, experiences that I had on our journey, have been useful as we go on.
0: Right, and you kind of you likened it your experience to kind of the Australian Aboriginal walkabout, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, looking that's funny. looking back, I can see that it was certainly a going back to the story, We're talking about getting out of Ireland, getting out of Belfast, getting away from your parents, getting away from your friends. I think you know, all these. Your environment, yeah. your friends, your family has an a, a, an impact on it on you when you're young. You don't know what you're like without that. So it's it's only by removing yourself from all those influences that you can actually find your own personality.
0: Right, and you this book has been very successful. I mean, you said you were prevented in writing it when you were younger, but it's—I mean—right now it it has five hundred fifty-six five-star reviews. It's only been out for two years, right?
1: Yeah, I think the fact that I'm not a a, a sort of standardized writer. Uh, it can either go, it can either be very, very good or very, very bad if you're a terrible writer, But it seemed to, think, seemed to have struck a chord with a lot of people who have enjoyed reading it and have been able to to uh, look back on their own youth and their own lives through, through it. I think certainly a lot of motorcyclists will have non motorcyclists as well because um, everybody grows up at some stage, you know
0: right but it's kind of like the, the the tone that comes across is your stories are so interesting layered upon on one after another and you're talking to so many different people too so it has a very human kind of interpersonal narrative to it so i think that that might be one of the reasons why people they resonated with people would you agree with that
1: yeah i mean again i was saying earlier by traveling on your own you're you're you say you're not staying in hotels very often very often you'd be staying with people and you're driving into their their houses meeting their families and you're you're able to see how their culture how their family works hear what their problems are people talk to you as if you're it as if you're a priest of some sort you know you're you're there you're you're part of the family for a few days but you're going to disappear again so they're not worried about telling you their secrets so you can't get quite close to people quite quickly um uh, so you know it's an unusual way of, of traveling which you don't get normally with as a tourist
0: right so yeah you were the off-roads tourist for sure <laughs> um and you I mean there's a lot of stuff we didn't get into traveling through the United States south south america central america I mean you really covered some real territory do you you figured out how many miles you traveled right
1: yeah probably about 35,000. Oh,
0: no. It was almost... You circumnavigated the globe and then some. Didn't.
1: Well, you see, you you actually can't ride around the ride around the world anyway because there's too much water in between and a lot of politics going on there, too, as I discovered. But what you can do is you go up and down the way the continents are organized. You see much more about going up and down the way I did it cover much more See a lot more cultures and and countryside than riding
0: around the world. Anyway, right. And yeah, we're like at thirty-five minutes. Where's the best place for people to get the book? I assume that there's a UK version or there's definitely a US version. Uh, well, did- so it's,
1: it's on Amazon uh, in the US and in the UK all around. It's on uh, paperback, hardback, and there's a, um, an ebook there's even- on it. Kindle book on an audiobook as well. Uh, and I can deliver from my own website as well. What's your website? It's Chris chrisdonaldson.world, Pre- chrisdonaldson.world
0: right? World, yeah. Chris- we'll deliver World. anywhere. World. So I'll put that in the show notes. Chris nice. And uh did, who's who did you narrate the 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 audiobook?
1: No, i got my um, a nephew who's a bit of a rock star, or a rock star. He's 21. I thought it would be slightly wrong for a, a 60-something-year-old to be talking about what a 21-year-old does in a, in a way that's not just condescending or looking back. I you know, tried to write the book as if I was 21 uh, by using my notes that I had that I'd written when I was 21. So I wanted the audio to, be, to reflect the same thing. So, but it's getting some very good reviews as well.
0: Yeah, it has excellent reviews. So just in the U.S., I have to go look at the U.K. Is there anything you'd like to add, Chris, or anything I missed before we wrap up uh, the discussion about your book going the wrong way? Um,
1: no, just to talk about reviews. I got a lovely review the other day. It was a guy whose son was in hospital for getting some back surgery, um, and he said he was able to read. the. So he couldn't. son couldn't get a set up in bed to read, but he read the book to him. And he yeah, actually sent me a review to say how well and much they both enjoyed it. And it really helped them to uh, look ahead and get get better. So it's touching to get some reviews I got. It's, reviews are great for authors to bum up their, their confidence. But um, also it's good for readers, obviously, to see if it's a good book or not. But it's, it's one of the nicest reviews I've had, certainly.
0: Oh, good. And it's really, kind of, it is an adventure book. It really is kind of like a modern adventure book, uh, going through strange places and peoples and climates and territories. And stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I did some very silly things.
0: Things you wouldn't do at, at your <laughs> things age. Things you <laughs>
1: wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, going through the desert so and
0: Sudan without any roads on a, a motorcycle uh, <laughs> Yeah, pretty daring. Anyway, thanks so much for your time, Chris Donaldson. Again, the title of the book, the full title, is Going the Wrong Way, A Coming-of-Age Story Like No Other. Chris Escapes 1970s Belfast. On his moto, Guzzi Le Mans, to find himself in the road to Australia. What Could Possibly Go Wrong. And it's published July 2020. You can get it uh, online. And I will put your website as well on there, chrisdonaldson.world. And people can contact you there if they want to reach out to you, right? Great, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks so much for your time, Chris.
1: Thanks very much. All right.
0: All right. Stay there. Stay there. You're welcome. Stay there.